Hi everyone, we are in Season 1, Episode 4, entitled, I Opened the Door and I Shall Stay. Let's go. Tangible Voices is a space where true voices from the past and present can be uncovered, shift our perspective, and resonate with our lives today. This podcast is brought to you by Anchor and made possible by us at One True Promotion. I am Carrie, an educator and performer. Once again, during this season, we are reading through I Dream a World, which is a collection of interviews and photographs of 75 game-changing African-American women, most of whom we didn't learn about in school. This book was published in 1989 with a foreword by Maya Angelou, photographs and interviews by Brian Lanker, and editing by Barbara Summers. What I happen to be reading are small segments of what could have been at times entire day interviews. So keep that in mind as the topics flow. Today, three women who persisted and broke barriers take the forefront today. First, we hear from composer extraordinaire Eva Jesse. Please, please, please listen to her work if you haven't heard of her. It is full, haunting, and exquisite. Stick around for all three stories because though I put each of them in order of the subject's birth, each of them are drastically different in tone, funky music content, no lie. They are challenging and empowering each in their own ways. This is an exciting episode. Jesse, born January 20th, 1895 in Coffeyville, Kansas. Eva Jesse, as choral director for the first Broadway production of George Gershwin's Porgy and Bess in 1935, was credited with authenticating the sounds of this American classic. She was the first black woman to win international distinction as the director of a professional choral group, the Eva Jesse Singers. Other innovative productions for which she was choral director include Hallelujah, the 1929 film by King Vidor, and the Virgil Thompson opera Four Saints in Three Acts, libretto by Gertrude Stein. For many years, the ambassador of the arts from Kansas, she eventually retired to her home in Ann Arbor, Michigan, where she passed away on February 21st, 1992. could read music so easily. The fact is, I didn't have to read the music. The teachers would never let me hear them play because I would just have it. I could always remember. It came naturally to me. Not second nature, but first nature. We didn't have no radio, no television, no anything like that. Not even a piano for a long, long time. I think I had about the first piano of a black person in Coffeyville. When I was in school at Kansas Wesleyan University, I heard Booker T. Washington say one day in a lecture, you go to school, you study about the Germans and the French, but not about your own race. I hope the time will come when you study black history too. Never forget to sing the songs of your mothers and fathers. Will Marion Cook was my mentor. 
He was a composer and an orchestra man. He had what they call a sweet syncopation orchestra that played sweet jazz ragtime. They called him Daddy Cook. He was so cantankerous, he wouldn't let you change a note on any of his music. I went through things in New York. I was living upstairs, and my little studio always had little concerts and things. A man knocked on my door and said, I'm from the electric company, and I've been sent time and time again to cut off your electricity. But I stood out here, and you were playing so beautifully, I couldn't do it. In New York, at the radio, they used to say, Well, we don't have any need for your music. They thought the Negro didn't know anything except spirituals. Radio was an area black people hadn't broken into, and it hadn't been opened for them. In 1929, I went to Hollywood, where we did Hallelujah. That was some experience. King Vidor, the director, fired me. But then they found the boy replacing me couldn't handle the music, couldn't get the results. I had a contract. A lawyer advised me to sit right beside the doorway every morning so they couldn't say I didn't show up. When they got ready to do some of those big church scenes with 200 people, I knew how to put little moans and groans and things that would make it real, you know. Vidor was a southern white man. Never looked a black man in the face. He said, something don't sound right. What is it? He missed a fellow who had a beautiful voice that could sound so mournful. In 1935, I had been traveling with my choir in South Carolina and we got back to New York just in time to audition for Porgy and Bess. I had 16 singers. When we sang, George Gershwin said, that's it, that's what I want. So they were the official choir of the first recorded production and I was the first choral conductor for Porgy and Bess. It's a masterful work. He was definitely gifted, of course, and a lovely person to know. I sat beside him while he was working on some of it in the penthouse on 72nd Street in New York City. He had two pianos downstairs, neck-to-neck concert pianos, and one upstairs that he worked at. I'm going to add to the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not envy thy neighbor Steinway pianos. George Gershwin knew a great deal. He studied a great deal but I've been black longer than he has. I had a lot of fun saying that. I was black all day and he wasn't. No imitator can be as close to a thing as one who is the source. I made a lot of changes when we did Porgy and Bess. The producers would ask me, do you think it should be this way or that way? I'd have to go through the score and point out where I thought they went a little astray. But of course, his stuff sounds quite white. You could almost tell he got it from someone else. Most black people know how to sing the blues. They twist a song all around. That's the black way of singing. Be inventive. They get the most emotion out of a note or a phrase. I traveled with Porgy and Bess to Vienna, Berlin, London, different places in the world, the South Pacific, Australia, Russia, Nothing reaches the mind and deepens the spirit like contact with people. 
I used to have an awful time traveling with my group. White people didn't want to accommodate you. I never thought it would be like it is now. I wonder, why did I keep the 16 singers touring in two cars when danger was involved and there was uncertainty about money? At the end of the week, we would just share the money. What you were born to do, you don't stop to think, should I? Could I? Would I? I only think, will I? And I shall. I traveled and made money and I wouldn't let anybody get between me and my music. If I belong to anything, I belong to my music. That's all. Any woman of that time would have had the same trouble I had. They never thought a woman could be as devoted to one idea as a man. They say you should not suffer through the past. You should be able to wear it like a loose garment, take it off, and let it drop. gorgeous dancer Janet Collins. You can see some of her performances on YouTube, and she was stunning. Janet Collins, born March 7, 1917, in New Orleans, Louisiana. Janet Collins, prima ballerina, was the first Black artist to perform on the stage of the Metropolitan Opera House in New York City. Her 1951 debut in Aida was preceded by her winning of the 1950-51 Donaldson Award for Best Dancer in a Broadway Musical. She remained with the Metropolitan's Ballet Company until 1954, starring in Carmen, La Gioconda, and Samson and Delilah. After touring the United States and Canada in solo dance concerts, she taught at several colleges and dance institutions in New York and California before retiring to Seattle to paint. She died on May 28, 2003 in Fort Worth, Texas. I come from a very unique family, exceedingly proud of their background. They never allowed us to have an inferiority complex. In fact, they were arrogant. I had to overcome arrogance. I asked about some aristocrat in the family. Who is this Marquis de Levelade? I said. They told me, that man could have been some old reprobate who was kicked out of France. We don't need to be proud of that. When I was about 15, I auditioned for the famous Ballet Russe de Monte Carlo. I saw ballet dancers warming up backstage at the Philharmonic. They gathered on this winding staircase. One had beautiful red shoes on that I will never forget. Red high-heeled shoes. Leonid Massin, the choreographer, called us one by one. When it, my turn came, there was a hush in that place like you wouldn't believe. I was the only little black face around. When I finished, the ballerinas applauded. Messine saw talent. He told me, you would make a wonderful character dancer. The only trouble is, 
in order for you to belong to the company, I would have to paint you white. You wouldn't like that, would you? Those were the terms. I said, no, I wouldn't want that. So I thanked him and went out on the library steps and I will never forget. I cried, cried, and cried. I thought talent mattered, not color. That's why I cried. When I went home and told Aunt Adele, she said, you get back to the bar and start your exercises. Don't try to be good, be excellent. Don't let that stop you. I won the Donaldson Award for being the finest dancer on Broadway in 1951 in Cole Porter's Out of This World. I could see Broadway was a charade. I could see the fickleness, the happiness, and the cruelty. At the top, the air is very light, but it is cruel. The top is not forever. Either you walk down or you are going to be kicked down. I walked down. The reason I became ballerina of the Metropolitan Opera was because I couldn't be topped. You don't get there because, you get there in spite of. My favorite move? I love the air. I was a jumper. I was an adagio dancer from when I was about 15. It's very athletic dancing that takes the girl and swings her around very spectacularly. I made the mistake of telling Zachary to love the Metropolitan Opera's bright young choreographer that I had done adagio dancing and sometimes he almost never let me get out of the air. The Met had never seen a black face. Marianne Anderson couldn't get in there. I felt like a doorknob. I was the dancer who opened the door. The Metropolitan Opera was going on tour. Mr. Rudolph Bing, the general manager of the Metropolitan Opera, called me into his office one day and he was very uncomfortable. He said, Miss Collins, I do not like what I have to tell you, but I am not Abraham Lincoln. He said he could not take me south on tour because there was a law down there that blacks and whites could not appear on the same stage together. I tried to speak to an old friend, but she put me on a pedestal. I just wanted to talk, and she said, Oh, you are not like the rest of us. You are Sunday, and we are every day. Your own family can do that to you. Always asking, what are you doing next? And we have read so-and-so, and we are collecting your reviews. But never, are you lonely? How do you feel? When you get to be an exceptional black, you don't belong to the white, and you don't belong to the black. You are too good for the black, and you will always be black to the white. Art serves me. I don't serve it. But I have to be a servant before it serves me. In other words, I have to be disciplined. There is no such thing as freedom without discipline. The one who is free is disciplined. A vertical line is dignity. The horizontal line is peaceful. 
the obtuse angle is action. That's universal. It is primary. I used every gift God gave me. The gift of love is the greatest. It's a difficult thing because there are people I know that I can't stand. But love doesn't mean affection. It means treating them justly even when they are terrible people. That takes a bit of doing. An awful lot of grace. Finally, Bertha Knox Gilkey. Her fearless talks and interviews are recorded on YouTube. According to I Dream a World, and modified by me to account for 31 years, Mrs. Knox Gilkey, and later Bonds, was born on March 18, 1949, in San Fran, Arkansas. She was president of the Cochrane Tenant Management Corporation in St. Louis, Missouri. An activist for welfare and tenant rights since the age of 14, In the mid-70s, she organized the tenants of a deteriorated public housing complex to regain control of their community and their destiny. She was instrumental in obtaining over $30 million in federal funds for renovation and new construction in the St. Louis area. Founder and president of Urban Women Incorporated, a consulting firm that provided leadership and management training to tenant groups. She travels with the Cochrane model throughout the United States, Europe, and Africa. She was later honored with an Essence Award presented by Oprah Winfrey in 1992. Mrs. Knox Gilkey passed away due to complications with cancer on May 25, 2014 in Alabama. call the tenement housing where my mother lived the quadroon. It had no floor, it was all dirt floor, and the windows were made out of like wax paper. We had no hot or cold running water. We used to get our water from the hydrant. All the people that lived in a quadroon had outside toilets. Poor to us never meant being irresponsible, not being accountable. Poor always meant you were held accountable for what you did and you had standards. When we moved to Cochrane, we thought we were moving to heaven to finally have hot and cold running water. Cochrane was beautiful. When Cochrane was all white, they didn't refer to it as a project. It was called Cochrane Gardens. As Cochrane became more and more black, I began to see the services reduced. Once it became all black, there was no standards. It moved from being a neighborhood to a project. It became a dumping ground. My mother had 15 children living in a three-bedroom apartment. There was no recreation. There was nothing to do. There was nowhere for kids to go. There was no jobs, no nothing. Everything was removed, and we were left to eat each other or get eaten. I watched women. Black women and poor white women struggle to make a community, a neighborhood with nothing. Then I watched millions of dollars come from the anti-poverty programs. 
After we did all the legwork, the people that were hired to work the programs were men, not women. It meant the programs were designed based on their philosophy, not the philosophy of women. And public housing is woman-dominated. In 1974, the city voted. The housing authority and the mayor said to tear Cochrane down. We said, over our dead bodies, we're here through all the bad times and we're going to be here for the good times. When we took to managing Cochrane in 1976, out of 880 units, only 400 units were occupied. All the rest were vacant, had been vacant for almost 9, 10 years. Two managers had gotten shot here before we took over managing. I remember many days I used to stand downstairs and beg people not to move out of Cochrane. We wouldn't have lights, and in the winter the heater wouldn't heat and the pipes would burst all over. And they said, Bertha, we just cannot stay. And I would say, it's going to get better. I took the gang leaders, second and third offenders, and created renovation crews. Kids that were normally vandalizing, setting these units on fire, were now restoring them. Cochrane is clearly a revolution of its own. It was supposed to fail because tenants don't manage, we are managed. We employ almost 200 people. We control how we live, how our children live, the quality of life our children will get. To me, that's revolution. And what I like about it, I don't go to jail today. I get put on TV. It's frustrating that people today say that Cochrane only works because of the charisma of Bertha Gilkey. Charisma doesn't stop people from urinating in alleys. Charisma doesn't stop vandalism. Charisma doesn't stop junkies from selling dope openly. It's not charisma that makes Cochrane work. It's because we gave people back a vested interest in where they live. Who's raising black men in this country? Black women. So if black men are not being very conscious of black women, then it is our fault. I think black women tend to love our sons and raise our daughters. We tend to not give men responsibility, not hold them accountable the way we hold our daughters. What worked in the 60s doesn't work in the 80s, so I changed my hair, pressed it right, put on a dress. My blackness has never been in my hair. Blackness is not a hairstyle. It is not a daishiki. Judge my blackness by the jobs that we have, by the money we are able to generate in the community in advance of the support services. Judge my blackness by that. The one thing I learned real quick once I took off my rebel clothes was that there is big money in poor folks. There's millions of people that benefit. They eat because I'm poor. They never want to eliminate poverty. They just want to control it. The day they eliminate poverty, they go out of business. I've always picketed in front of the White House, never went inside. But I was invited to go inside for the signing of this bill, which will give tenants the right to manage their property and to own if they choose to go to the next step. I would like to add here, for those who may not know, 
that the Cochrane Building was ultimately demolished in 2008. A new housing complex was built where it once stood. To me, this building was and is a symbol of systemic racism and discrimination following the Civil Rights Act that meant to many cases of unofficial segregation, this example being one of them. For more information on cases like this, I recommend the book Segregation by Design, Local Politics and Inequality in American Cities by Jessica Traunstein. If you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to subscribe. If you could rate my podcast five stars, that would be incredibly helpful to get the message behind this podcast to even more people. I thank you from the bottom of my heart. Be sure to visit Tangible Voices Podcast on Instagram for even more content and to be in the know about what's coming up. Thank you for listening, and please remember that your voice has a power all its own. Bye-bye.